Every day, hundreds of thousands of us are building a future we can all be proud of. For over 36 years, the growth CBUS My Super Investment option has returned an average of 8.98% per annum for its members, while investing in projects that not only create jobs, but a better future. CBUS, for all of us. To consider if CBUS is right for you, go to cbussuper.com.au for a PDS. Past performance is not a reliable indicator of future performance. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is The Final Word, story time with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins, the weekend version of TFW, where we do uh, our wander through cricket history. We go off from the main roads into the the by lanes, the byways. I don't know where Frank Sinatra went in that song because he had to find something that rhymed with my way and he was like, mm, byway, uh, highway, uh, shyway and then was <laughs> completely out of ideas. <laughs> Nothing left whatsoever. Uh, but we're full of ideas. We've got a show jam-packed full of good cricket history goodness and uh, also jam-packed full of Adam Collins. Hello. Hello, Jeff. I, I waved at the camera then as we started, as if to say that this will mm. be on YouTube. And look, maybe it will be on YouTube. We haven't quite canvassed it yet, but it won't be our faces on there. So there's no need for me to wave at the camera today. But no. uh, hey, it's nice that you did. It, yeah, it might, it, it's within the realms of possibility this will end up on YouTube. We're working on that. And if you're one of the nearly one million people that have watched us on there in the last two and a half months, well, um, well played uh, to you. We're grateful for uh, the people who have, who have stumbled upon that platform that we had no intention of developing in 2021, but here we are. Mm. Uh, that tends to be the way that things go. Um, as far as people jumping on things, we hit the 600 on Patreon. A lot of the people who listen to this show are Patreon people and that's how they send us the numbers for the show. So thank you uh, so much to all of the 600 people and the others who have been there at times in, in the past for whatever period of time it was and are no longer there. But they were and they remain with us in spirit. They do. We love yous all, uh, as that great philosopher Jeff Fennick once said. And mm. we have that goal that we, I think we stated on the previous edition of Storytime, where we are going to hunt down James Anderson 614. And as he takes wickets through the year, we will hunt him again. Mm. And hopefully we can overtake before the first test match in England play. It might be a mutual hunting, you know, like we might yes. get him, but then he might get us. But then <laughs> we get him again, and then he gets us again. And, and on it goes. Um, we spur each other on to greater heights. Well, maybe, maybe this might incentivize the yeah the nerd pledges that we get as we work towards mm. 614 maybe they can be anderson centric to an extent which means that we <laughs> might be able to do a jimmy special with a I suppose a body of work as long as his or as big as his mm. there's probably room for a big statistical anderson show it may not please all of our listeners who, no. who have been frustrated by him uh, as a bowler over the years but still that is our next goal 614 so thanks to everyone who's pushed us over the 600 in the last week the same week we hit two million downloads on the bad producer feed so yeah it's been a really nice week of uh, the love being shared on the final word social media pages it's been good times um if you want coverage of the england india t20 series we're doing those on youtube only they're not in the podcast feed because we had a lot of daily shows recently so we made that decision but if you want to follow those they're they're on the tubes check out our tubes <laughs> now in terms of amazing responses uh, last week's story time the story of dera ismail khan the first class the very briefly first class team in pakistan that had the worst loss in the history of cricket in terms of the magnitude of runs. We've had a lot of messages about 
the idea we floated during the show completely ad hoc that we should do a tour, a final word tour, maybe make up an entire team and get to Derek Ishmael Khan. Either I don't think we've we've ironed out the um the fine can you iron out the fine print? Let's do that. We're going to mix that metaphor. We're going to iron out the fine print. So we don't know whether we're going to play for Derek Ishmael Khan or against Derek Ishmael Khan, but we're going to find a way to be involved somehow. And heaps of people now want to get on that trip. They're all coming to Pakistan with us. Yeah, it seems that way. So the last time that Derek Ishmael Khan played a game was 2018. So they might be looking for representatives to front Recruits. up for them and wear, and wear their caps. Yeah. So we've got a number Maybe of those. Maybe they were just sending the WhatsApp <laughs> saying, like, is anybody available for the weekend for the last couple of years? And no one's been – they've only had six or seven players, you know, they've had to bail out, they've had to give their game to someone else and, and we could fill in the gaps. Yeah, and some of the better responses. Uh, our mate from the ABC, Brett Spriggs, said we should make a documentary, and it names itself Dara to Dream. <laughs> I thought that was quite good. And uh, Alan Edgar, who we, um, of course, talked about over the last two weeks with his uh, Sherlock Holmes nerd pledge, he told me during the week that for years and years, every fantasy team that he plays in, he always names them Dara Ishmael Khan as a, as a tribute to the uh, game that was played in 1964. Mm. That's very Alan Edgar areas there. But no, we've had um, uh, the party liaison, Tim Vanderpump, he's coming on the trip. Uh, so is Anna Forsyth, Sarah Berman, who uh, uh, does a lot of sort of high-end professional scoring now. She's offered to be our scorer on the trip, which is pretty cool. Sean Barry dropped me a line saying that he's been to Derek Ishmael Khan as a tourist. He was there in, mm. I think he said 2001, something like that. But he planned right. to go back to Pakistan in 2002. And then I suppose the, the world changed in terms of what was possible uh, around that time. And he mm. hasn't been back since, but he's dead keen to visit with us next year. And also, Jeff, uh, we heard from Pat Rogers uh, about the game in question. There's a, a chapter in a book that documents that famous day in Lahore. Uh, a close run thing is the chapter title from the book White on Green. Uh, written by Peter O'Born and Richard Heller. And, yeah, there's lots of detail here but um, that, of course, that we couldn't necessarily garner from the scorecard last week. One of those bits is that they were all between the age of 15 and 20, all 11 players. Of course, it was their first mm. and only game of first-class cricket. At Iniatula, the, the uh, opening bowler who took one for 279 and then got a duck... Oh, sorry, he got a pair of ducks, I should say. Mm -hmm. He was the youngest player in the team at age 15, so a fairly brutal <laughs> interrogation to the game. I hope he stayed in the sport, but, yeah, there was there was more to it as well as far as, Jeff, uh, the way they ended up getting first-class status as a bunch of mates from school, really. Yeah, um, so that I think there was a, a nearby team that had been disbanded or had been barred or something. There was an expansion of the, the, the first-class tournaments to take in sort of qualifying rounds, um, and a nearby team had been – was not able to – compete and so these guys got together and said let us be the Dera Ismail Khan <laughs> first class team and were struggling to have that idea taken seriously but managed to pull some strings with the 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 friend of one of their parents was a lawyer with a bit of clout somewhere who who got them classified as the representative team and so they had a you know a two-day journey with the bus and the train and all the rest of it um, down to Lahore and then not being able to sleep in a terrible hotel and then going out against a very good professional cricket team um, or well a, a, a top level cricket team at least in railways and um, getting absolutely demolished but you know uh, particularly that the railways players were like no no we're not going to take it easy on this side we're going to no. absolutely batter them <laughs> Well, they were relieved to... Derek Ishmael Khan, according to the chapter in the book, they were relieved to bowl first. And I can understand that. I mean, 
I think we've all played in games of cricket where you uh, where you lose the toss and ask the field first. You're like, right, at least it gives us a chance to maybe be in the game. Mm. Like you know, whereas if you bat first when you're outmatched, often it can be a quick game and, a, and, and, and an unflattering yep. result. So they got that chance, but of course, as we know, they had 910 peeled off against them. And as you, you talk about how seriously Railways took it, it includes the obstructing the field dismissal that we um, talked about yep. uh, in reference to Kaiser Khan. That happened according to the book where he defended a ball and he was so angry about what was going on, he just booted the ball off the pitch and Railways, <laughs> not giving an inch, they appealed and he was given out <laughs> obstructing the field for kicking the ball away in anger. So um, beautiful stuff really, documenting the, the travails of, uh, of those cricketers and hopefully we'll get a chance to uh, yeah get over there next year. I think, Jeff, the, the cricket suicide of it, after the weekly show the other day when we had a, a special on Brazil, maybe where yeah, maybe we're going to be in Pakistan and Brazil next year, and we're going mm-hmm. to fold it into one cricket tour. I don't know how we're going to do this exactly, but we know people who know people who do cricket tours, and we're fairly determined to make it work. So the, the next piece of the puzzle is applying pressure on Cricket Australia to visit Pakistan for those Test matches next year. What we don't want is them to go, ah, oh, we'll just go to Dubai and Abu Dhabi and play them there. That'll kind of mm. scupper these plans. But I reckon that there'll be enough momentum by the time we reach 2022 with so many countries having visited for Test cricket especially that it'll be kind of hard to for, for CA to then go, oh, well, actually, yeah. we're, we're not going to go. I think they'll kind of have to make that commitment to Pakistan cricket. What, what would be the justification for, you know, Sri Lanka... South Africa, England, Zimbabwe all visiting, but Australia saying, mm. well, actually, we have a higher standard than, than you and we won't visit. That won't be sustainable. Well, CA are always likely to be the last board to agree to go anywhere. That's been historically the case. But they pretty much will be the last board by 2022. So there, <laughs> there, is, there is that benefit. And the most important thing is that if we go back to the UAE, you and I may be arrested on entry. So, look, let's, <laughs> let's really push for the Pakistan <laughs> alternative um, where, you know... Uh, we're, we're, we're less likely to immediately run into trouble. Yes, that sounds good. Hicks Watch, the latest edition of, uh, has been sent through to us by Jono Halen, who's been keeping an eye on Jody Hicks in grade cricket in Sydney. Anticlimactic this weekend, he said, as rain made play impossible in Sydney on game day. The much-anticipated clash with Bankstown was abandoned, match drawn. But in what may be a change in fortune for Jody, her team Sydney advanced through to the grand final against Northern District on Sunday at Bankstown Oval. So we get one more game to enjoy and Three. for Hicksy to shine. Come on, Sydney, says Jono. Well, this show's going out on Saturday, which means the day after is Jody Hicks Day in the grand final, if you don't mind, batting at four and having steered her team to that grand final. And this is the most exciting moment until about July or August when her next WBBL contract gets announced. I cannot wait for that. Fantastic. Thank you, Jono, for keeping us updated and uh, send through that scorecard as soon as the grand final has finished. Jeff, we're about 10 minutes into the show, which is usually the time we start doing a little bit of... Nerd Pledge If you can't understand that That's Nerd Pledge It's a game that we play with people on the Patreon page Uh, They use it as a means to support the show Bless them for that And they do it by sending us uh, very specific amounts of currency That might be uh, not a normal amount Not a round amount It'll be something irregular But it will have a link to cricket That number will link to cricket in a way that they know And we don't know or don't yet know And we have to work out what it is. I realised a lot of shows do sort of quizzes and stuff if you've ever listened to late night radio, but it's always mm. the show asking the audience the questions. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, because we're such glory hogs, we're like, we will answer the questions. So the new numbers as they have come in this week, the first 
is a double header, which means two different people have sent the same number, but they may have sent it for different reasons. So we will try to canvas that. The number is $3.09. The senders are Rob Richardson and Joel Burton. So uh, Rob sent through a little note, not a clue exactly, but just said, tried to make it a little harder. So that tends to indicate that it might not be the most obvious solution. Joel, we have an open field. And Adam, you have first tilt at 309. Yeah, I've had a stab at Rob's uh, on account of the fact that he said we needed to look a little harder. And the first scorecard I happened upon was a compelling one, Jeff, because a couple of weeks ago we're, we're talking about the uh, the time-honoured fixtures that where the Hindus played. And I was just mm. curious to see 309 bob up in reference to them. So before we get to the game uh, that I'm going to explore in a bit more detail and it's, it's worth the wait, the Hindus played for 40 years. You look at their first-class fixtures. They started in 1906 and played through until 1946. They played against mm-hmm. the Europeans and the Parsis through to World War One, and then they started taking on the Muslims in 1916 in a quadrangular tournament with Parsis and Europeans. Then these tournaments continued in both uh, Bombay, or Mumbai as it's known today, and Lahore through the 1920s and 1930s with the rest starting to feature as a fifth team. Is that just anybody who doesn't fit into one of the aforementioned categories? Yeah, well, that, that's kind of how I'm interpreting it. So there's the, okay. the, the three religious groupings, there's the Europeans, yeah. and I suppose anyone who doesn't, uh, it's the popuri, it's the miscellaneous. I couldn't see that going very well these days if you were like, let's let's make cricket teams based on religious lines and have them play one another. Yeah, just, very... I have a feeling it, it would end um, <laughs> harmoniously. Yeah, very of its time, isn't it? But yeah, the game we're going to look at was a final of one of these uh, pentangular tournament that was played in 1943, including all the aforementioned religious teams, where the Hindus played the rest uh, in the decider in Bombay. December 1943. Now, Jeff, a couple of weeks ago when looking at one of these Hindus games, we, we've been kind of tapping into uh, some of the early legends of Indian cricket. So CK Nayadu, the Nawaba Patoli, of course, Vijay Merchant uh, and Vijay Hazare. Now, this match features the latter two. And a couple of weeks ago, we tried to solve a pledge using the 250 that Vijay Merchant made in the first innings of this very match for the Hindus. But that's not the primary story here. I'm not that interested in the Hindu side of the equation uh, as far as what we're about to get to. So the, the rest, bat second and make 133 in response to the Hindus 581, which included the VJ Merchant 250. And then they were asked to follow on. And this is where things get interesting. And I must say, Jeff, when we first looked at this card for 250, you were telling me before, you didn't even look at the third innings of this game. You, you saw the 250, which was relevant to our clue yeah. or to our pledge at the time, and, and that's where we left it. We should have read on. Mm. Didn't really think about how it ended, that one. I was like, <laughs> oh, I, I don't think I even looked at the results. I just assumed the team that made 500 versus the team that made 100 went on to win. But, um, uh, well, they did, but not before a twist. No, a fairly big twist at that. So this scorecard doesn't quite meet the beauty of Dera Ishmael Khan, perhaps, but it, it comes pretty close. So we mentioned Vijay Hazare before. He's already in the game. In the first innings, out of 133, he top scores with 59, batting at number three. So he's in form, but then he um, drops down to number four for the follow-on, but he's still coming in at two for 14. So they're stuffed. They're going to lose by an innings. It's, it's all downhill skiing for the Hindus to win the final and win the trophy. But... Our man Vijay Hazare, the man we're focusing in on here, he walks in at 2 for 14 and he leaves as the final wicket to fall with the rest making all up 387, some 61 runs short of making the Hindus bat again. So they've lost by an innings, all out 387. But that's not that. There were 374 runs made while 
Hazare was in the middle, and he made 307 of them in just 417 <laughs> minutes. The next highest score was his little brother, Vivek Hazare, who was four years his junior. He was a bowler. He came in at, like, number eight and made 21 in 332 minutes out of a partnership of an even 300. So the big brother's what? going bunta, <laughs> while uh, little bro Vivek makes just 200, just 21 rather in that stand of 300. So I know what you're all wondering here. You're doing the sums in your head. You're going 309 out of a total of 387, and you are correct to be doing that equation in your head. 79.8%. We have ourselves an astonishing Bannerman, a Bannerman including a triple ton, a Bannerman including a game where they've still lost by an innings. I can't <laughs> fathom there would have been an innings where there's been a Bannerman with a triple hundred anyway. Look, maybe there was. We'll, we'll ask the crowd if you can find out for us during the week if there's been another triple ton Bannerman. We'd love to see it. But where they've also lost by an innings, it's quite staggering mm. and quite special, that card. As for Vijay Hazare, he sort of made his belated test debut after the war in, in 1946. He played 30 test matches in seven years, seven centuries, made 48, one of the greats of Indian cricket. He made another triple ton at first class level. He finished with 60 centuries in just 238 games at an average of 39, so quite a remarkable record. But yes, that remarkable story indeed uh, from 1943 where he bannermaned a triple against the Hindus <laughs> in a game where they lost by an innings, Jeff. <laughs> Well, you wouldn't have needed to do it in your head if you had used Jeremy Burke's Bannerman quotient wall chart, which we've sent to quite a few people, and I hope that people have been printing it out and affixing it to the wall next to their television so they can follow along in future, because that does would it go? take you all the way up to... Well, I wonder it, if it, it goes, goes up to 1,000. It goes up to 1,000, right? Okay, okay. Mm. Well, there yeah. you go. Yep, yep. Je- yep, Jeremy's been uh, had the foresight to say that, you know, the highest test team score is 950 odd so he'll take it up to a thousand so it's pretty easy to work out what you'd need out of a thousand it would be 673 i would imagine but the other ones are less straightforward to work out so that is the 309 for rob richardson for joel burton 309 first of all i wanted to look at one lancelot gibbs how mm. good have the west indies been at providing us with magnificent first names uh, an off spinner who usually went by lance who uh you know at one time could have been the champion of the world. He was. He, he was the world record holder when he went past Fred Truman's 307 test wickets and Lance Gibbs ended up on 309. So he was that West Indies spinner before they had all the pace attacks and he took bags of wickets every year through the 60s and then kept going. He played three one-dayers all up but besides a lot of test matches and played one game at the 1973 World Cup. His test Records like breaking those records relied on getting a late tour of Australia in 1976 when he was 41. So he fits into our sort of final word, old spinners category by Mm, that mm. point. And that's when he took his 300th wicket and then went on to take the world record which uh, later passed on to Dennis Lilly. So he, he was the most prolific finger spinner, or the most prolific spinner, I suppose, until he started getting passed by, you know, the likes of uh, Murley and Warren and Kumble and so on. But as far as finger spinners go, it's only Harbhajan, Ashwin and Nathan Lyon who've gone past him. So that's one three oh nine. Or you could flip it and say for a bit of West Indies pace variety, 309 could be 30.9, which is the test bowling average of Patrick Patterson, the fearsome, who had a much shorter test career, rocked India at Delhi in 87, rocked Australia at the MCG in 88, rocked England at Edgbaston in 91, and uh, took 93 wickets in 28 tests. So 30.9 is 
the, the kind of average you'd expect from a bowler who was a bit expensive on his day. But 51 strike rate, so he took a, a wicket every what, eight and a half overs, which has him in the top 50 or so bowlers of all time. So he, uh, he got poles. Nicely done. I feel like a bit of a university lecturer. Well, I look like one too wearing a turtleneck at the moment, but I feel like one by, <laughs> by, by setting some um, uh, some further reading, as it were. If you want to learn more mm-hmm. about Lance Gibbs in The Night Watchman last year, Jonathan Wilson wrote a, a beautiful piece about when Lance Gibbs came to the northeast of England to play some club cricket. I think it was in the late 60s. And uh, as far as Patrick Patterson is concerned, I mean, we've had Barat Sunder racing on the show a number of times, but... His magnus opus, his the equivalent of his Channel Nine piece, I suppose you would say, Jeff, uh, for people who read you, <laughs> is when he found Patrick Patterson, and indeed still stays mm. in contact with him. There was a, a lovely post about uh, Patrick on his birthday a couple of months ago, which uh, came from um, um, Brat finding him again and having another conversation. So dig that out and have a read. Well, he got him onto Sachin's birthday list, didn't he? That's you know, it's, right. It's not You're easy right. to get yes. into that spreadsheet. And, and he quote tweeted, exactly right. So I did a bit of Sachin bait on Twitter last week. I thought, well, look, let's see how we go. I found the first photograph ever taken of Tendulkar that was featured in the Wisden Almanac from 1991, which was the edition of the book that I was resting uh, my computer on when we were talking to Mark Butcher a couple of weeks ago, where his dad happened to be one of the, the five cricketers of the year in, in that season. But in the 91 edition, there's a photo of Sachin having made, of course, a test century in England in, in 1990 there in Manchester and it's a beautiful shot of him and I I put that up and tagged him and I thought there's ever a chance of Tendulkar engaging with the final word on Twitter this might be the time but he, he left it through to the keeper judiciously <laughs> yeah I mean, just imagine the amount of internet traffic that bloke gets oh, yeah. Um, yeah please reply well alright on we go to our next number it comes in from El Presidente uh, President Richard Bond McNally $4.84 <laughs> <laughs> not not quite four score and seven years ago, um, but you know, not not too far away. Four eighty four with an open field. I I ended up in New Zealand quite a bit with four eighty four because New Zealand made four hundred and eighty four twice in significant Test matches. There's the one in nineteen forty nine where Martin Donnelly made a double century. He's he's New Zealand's what if player. He played yeah. seven Tests, made a double ton, looked a million bucks, and then just decided not to keep playing cricket because you know you didn't get paid for it in those days, and he had work to do. But they also made four eighty four in the draw where the Chapel brothers made twin tons the only instance of two batsmen making twin centuries in the same test match so that was New Zealand's score in that game as well but you know both draws not necessarily interesting other than that 484 for an England link because I think uh, the president is uh, a a UK based president um, an an unusual political situation (laughs) but that's where we that's where we have it we mentioned a couple of weeks ago Marcus Triscothic's double hundred that he made in test matches it so happened that came in a test match where South Africa first made 484, the number in question, at the Oval. So big ton, Herschel Gibbs makes 183, Gary Kirsten makes 90, Sean Pollock batters 60-odd at the end, and they're feeling pretty good about themselves after keeping England in the field for 130 overs. And then England come out and make 604 for nine declared, Triscothic 219. But the real punisher is Flintoff, who comes in and makes 90 at a runner ball to ice the innings and... Uh, South Africa crumbled to Martin Bicknell and Harmison to give up a small mm. chase. So that that's where I thought it was going. And then it was interesting looking at that 11 because you've got Mark Butcher, who we spoke to last week, Michael Vaughan, Stephen Harmison, they've all gone into commentary. 
Andrew Flintoff has a big TV career. Shreskothic and Graham Thorpe are high-level batting coaches. Ed Smith is the, na- the national team selector. Yeah. Alex Stewart's running Surrey. <laughs> Ashley Giles runs the English cricket, the head of director of cricket at the ECB. And so the only ones who aren't sort of running the joint still are Martin Bicknell, who that was his last test match of, of the four that he played. And, you know, he did some bits and pieces with coaching and stuff for Surrey, but not so much at the same level. And then James Anderson, who's still playing test cricket remarkably, having played <laughs> in that match all those years ago. But you look down that 11 and it's, you know, it's it's a pretty um, power index kind of 11. It's like looking at the uh, Hawthorne Premiership team of 1983. I think 10 senior coaches came from that 22 yeah. or 20, whatever it was, uh, at some point or another. So the equivalent of that found... 30 years on with England cricket. There you go. There's a tangential link for you. 20 years on. Nicely done, Jeff. Thank you, President Richard Bond McNally. Another double header next up. 508 from Mel Shawley and Chris Unwin. I had a look at Mel's who sent me mm-hmm. a message the other night saying that she's been watching the Americans on my recommendation. Well, if she's taken up that, I think everyone should, for it is the best show ever made. I mm-hmm. finished it again the other night with Rach, who'd never seen it before, and it really packs a punch. Okay, so Mel 58, 508, I thought 548, because that's a, that's a set of figures, Jeff, that has come up mm-hmm. quite a bit in recent times. And I didn't realise to what an extent it has been the case. Now, as you know, I, I quite like it when something hasn't happened for a very long time and it mm. happens a bunch of times in, in quick succession. Well, that is absolutely mm. the case for the bowling analysis of five for eight. So in the first 143 years of international cricket, never happened. Men or women, nada. No mm. five for eights anywhere. And then it happened wow. three times in test cricket in the space of two and a half years. So Kemar Roach... Five for eight against Bangladesh in 2018. And then two of them in the space of a few months. Josh Hazelwood against India in Adelaide. Test match we were at, Jeff, last December when they bowled out India for 36. Mm -hmm. And then Joe Root at Ahmedabad no more than three weeks ago in the third test match of that series. His cheeky five for eight uh, when uh, he was able to take advantage of that that surface and India's lower order going after him. So there's been three Mm -hmm. in men's test cricket all since 2018. Two of them in the last few months. And then you look at the, the women's side of the equation. And it's much the same. In 2017, in, in one day international cricket for women, Ekta Bish took five for eight for India against Pakistan. And then in T20 cricket, 2016 was the first instance where Sunil Luce took five for eight against Ireland at the World T20. Jeff, you were probably at that game. And then more recently in 2019 for Indonesia against the Philippines, Nomadi Putri Suwandewi, who picked up five for eight uh, once they... I suppose, had T20 status, Indonesia and, and Philippines, having uh, not enjoyed that in the past. So six instances of five for eight in international cricket, all since 2016, having never been taken at any other stage. How's that for you? I don't think Philippines were enjoying it very much when they had five for eight taken against them. <laughs> I'll put it that way. But yeah, that's <laughs> that's very nicely founded. An entirely modern phenomenon for Mel Shawley, the five for eight. For Chris Unwin, 508. Well, 508 is seven more runs than Brian Lara made when he broke the world record for first-class cricket. Um, but it's probably not that. Uh, look, the obvious answer is that David Boone bowled six overs in test cricket and 13.4 overs in one-day international cricket, conceding exactly 100 runs, which is an economy rate across all internationals of 5.08 per over. I mean, that's that's what we'd be thinking foremost. You know, that's what that's what springs to mind. Yeah. So David Boone's bowling came up 
When did it come up, Jeff? Last year, um, when we were making the Australia mm. A series, uh, he picked up Phil Emery in the final, who was playing for Australia A, and Phil Emery um, talked to Dan Bredig for a long piece he wrote about his uh, test match that he played in Pakistan in 1994 and, and the fact that yeah, later in that year, well, the next summer at home, it was David Boone with... He bowled, I want to say, leg breaks. So I feel like he bowled leggies. It was filth, and for whatever reason... Mm. I think the reason, actually, Mark Taylor turned to David Boone is he knew Phil Emery well. They were yeah. close friends from New South Wales. And he mm-hmm. arrived at the conclusion that this would be a way to get in Emery's head. And it worked a beauty. I think he mm. got caught at deep mid-wicket or something like that, the MCG. He, he must have bowled leg breaks. Pretty much any chunky boy with a moustache bowls leg breaks. You know, they're, <laughs> they're not built to bowl anything else. Like Thick cricketers bowl leg breaks, <laughs> put it that way. Um, so, right. Um, yeah, David Boone, the, the, the thing with him is that you know every time I have a look at his numbers and and his middle name pops up and it just takes me to the end of eight mile with um you know you remember uh, this guy's a gangster his real name is Clarence and Clarence lives at home with his parents and Clarence's parents have a real good marriage because uh, he's David Clarence Boone yes uh, so on legs Eminem pops into my head but five oh eight aside from David Boone's bowling analysis uh, it's the series tally that Bradman collected on his last tour in England oh, yeah. in nineteen forty eight made five hundred and eight runs on the tour and then by a spooky coincidence in 2015 in the Ashes, Steve Smith made 508 runs touring England in that series, which is interesting. But I also realised while looking at 508 that it's the England cap number of Jonathan Agnew, which again, I know we've touched on this before, but it seemed ridiculous that I thought, well, hang on, Australia's cap numbers aren't up to 500 yet. And yet for England, that was Jonathan Agnew. And then I went and had a look and I realised the, the most recent Australian one is Will Pekofsky. 460. 460 for England. It was David Lloyd. <laughs> so we're going back to early 70s. Well, 74 he debuted, didn't he? Yeah. yeah. Who, who is now, a, you know, an elder statesman of the game on commentary on Sky. Uh, next coming up for the caps that haven't been distributed for Australia will be Graham Gooch didn't stick out because he played for so long, well into the 90s. But 462 is David Steele, you know, the bank clerk who went to war, <laughs> as we've spoken about on the show before. So there's two players down the line in terms of Australian test debutants, they'll be taking the cap number that David Steele took back in 1975 against Lillian Thompson. Yeah, I suppose, depending on how it goes, there might be a time where Australian cricketers are getting caps where their corresponding cap numbers for England have died, not because of, you know, of old age. It would, mm. it would be interesting. But on the other side of that, Bumble, obviously, very much still with us. We should get him to interview Will Pekofsky at some point, maybe when, uh, yes, when Australia are in the England. 460s. The 460s. <laughs> I wonder who the 420s are. I'm sure you know who the 420s are. (laughs) So uh, why don't you look it up while I simply say that uh, Jonathan Agnew, one of his eight test wickets, I think it's eight, was Viv Richards. And Mike Selvey also has Viv in his back pocket. So uh, for two men who went on to have long, illustrious careers in in the press boxes, uh, well, in the case of Selv, principally as a a writer, but also on TMS, and Aggers, who's been the BBC's cricket correspondent for... 30 years now, and they both, as players, uh, picked up Viv as test bowlers. Mm. Yes, um, among not too many others um, in that company. So that's 508. Next up is Will Cuxon with $5.57, with a clue from Will saying... It's a similar genre, not in terms of the type of stat, but the type of match. To my first pledge, uh, it's a stat from a pretty memorable match. Well, Will Cuxon's first pledge was relating to the two hat-tricks that Mitchell Stark took in a Sheffield Shield game. 
Yeah. So I would take that to mean that this has to involve the Sheffield Shield in some way. Yeah, and, and I haven't got far on this other than to say that there have been four, five for 57 since Shield cricket in the last 20 years, including Nathan Coulson Isle, Chad Sayers, Chris Tremaine, but none of them were in sort of games that would the standout and if you look I'm just kind of looking at the modern era there've been no scores of 557 in the last 20 or so years either so if it's a, a more modern game we're, we're looking at something mm. slightly more obscure although we might be going back into the annals of history as well Jeff I, I think we might be going more into parts of the scorecard we don't expect because the other note from Will was that it's a bit abstract so maybe it's not as straightforward as representing bowling figures or something like that. I mean, South Australia made 557 for nine when Bradman was there making... Um, and nearly got to a double century in that game and, and they beat Queensland by 10 wickets in 1939 just before the, the war came through. Right. But it's probably not a score because if you're saying it's abstract then it's going to be something else. But I can't get a handle on this. I've, I've spent a while trying to hunt this quarry around uh, the, the dark woods of my mind, and I'm not sure. So I think this might be one that we're punting into the crowd until next week to see if any of our final word listening geniuses can figure out 5.57 or 5.57 or 55.7, whatever it might be, in an abstract sense related to a very memorable match that was probably in the Sheffield Shield. Yeah, I suppose he said a, a, a type of match like this. So it could be another first-class game would be the the one other mm. the caveat I put on that, but probably the Shield based on, on the previous clues. So thank you to Will for keeping us on our toes. We're back to Chris Unwin here, Jeff. Now explain this for us. Yes, this was, this was very funny, and so I decided uh, that there, there was nothing we could do about it because we've long held that the, the spreadsheet is inviolate. Uh, numbers are addressed at the order that they come in. Unless there's a double header, because if someone up the list has the same number as someone down the list, we put them together because the answer that we give for one of those people might be the, the one that the other one's actually looking for, and so we're, you know, we're socialising our possible correct answers. So Chris Unwin had sent in this new number, which is $6.56 or £6.56, I assume, and much, much later had put in the previous number that we had from Chris, which was <laughs> 508. But it just so happened that Mel Shawley had also put in a 508 much earlier. And so Chris bumped up the list with his 508 and now he's here uh, again, two numbers down the list with 656. So what have you got for 656? Yeah, so, okay. So 656, we know with Chris Unwin it's going to be lengths related. Um, so that helps narrow it down um, oh, do we? somewhat. Well, in the past, Chris has given mm. us a few lengths once, hasn't he? He likes your sort of – he's probably the same age as us or thereabouts, and he loves cricket from a certain yep. era. So I'm um, I'm fairly sure it'll pertain to that again. And okay. with the remit of story time, right, is to tell tales from a long time ago that we had no idea about because, you know, of course we weren't here and it's nice to shine a light on, uh, on some of those corners of the game. But also I think like misunderstood players or misunderstood stories – even more modern stories, and I think this falls into that category. So 656 was an English test cap. Mm. It's, it's the 656-man to play test cricket was Simon Kerrigan, Milo, as we've um, sometimes jokes uh, on the show in the past, the, mm -hmm. the left-arm spinner, who got a test taboo at the Oval in 2013 in the final test of that series. But I just thought that everybody knows what happened at the Oval. Everybody knows that he got mauled by Watto, none for 53 from his eight overs in test cricket. Like, that story's dealt with, Right. What about the other story? How does he end mm. up playing for England? 
you know, what's he done since? And I think that's more interesting, really, with this guy. And uh, it deserves to be told, albeit briefly. So he signed for Lanks in 2008. Young spinner. Makes his debut in 2010. He's an England Lions player by 2011. It's all going really well. He's part of that championship-winning, drought-breaking Lanks team in in, uh, in 2011. The first time they'd won the, the championship since 1950. It was such a spectacular achievement. And he was integral to that. He picked up 9 for 51 against Hampshire in the penultimate game of the season. Four minutes before the end of the game, the last wicket was to fall, which meant that they were still in the hunt to win the thing. So if not for Kerrigan, mm. the joy of 2011 maybe doesn't happen for that club. And I should note that 9 for 51 is the best figures for Lancashire since 1953. So he really did earn his progression up the ranks. And as I say, went on a Lions tour in, in 2011. By 2012, he's like the, the top spinner at the club, takes 44 wickets. He's on the way up. 2013, it's all going really well, and he gets this chance, essentially ahead of Monty Panesar. So Swan has a second spinner. They go with the young bloke from Lanks. He's probably 22 at the time or something like that, 23 mm. maybe. And, yes, it all goes yeah. wrong. They've already won the Ashes. It, yep. You know, they're not so fussed about it. Um, and, yeah, he gets nervous and loses his length and Shane Watson belts him around and on they go. He has the nightmare that we probably all have had, that we would be playing international cricket and we would forget what we were doing. He had that moment, which is horrible for him because, you know, it's, it's a punchline to a gag almost now. But what I love is the fact that he did bounce back. The next game at Southport, I remember reading a match report on Crick Info at the time about this. It was probably written by Paul Edwards, where it was happening again. After he made 62 batting at number 11 in the first innings of the match, he was losing it. He couldn't land the ball, tons of full tosses. It was all going awry. He was having a breakdown at the lunch break, I think it was. He just couldn't believe what was happening to him. And then he went out and, and took three for 48 and did his job and got back on, the, back on the horse. And sure, he didn't sort of scale the heights of 2013 where he picked up 58 wickets at 22. But in 2014, he does get picked for the England squad again. When India are there that year, he's still in the test squad. They don't completely ditch him. They, they still want him to be there and thereabouts. He picks up 44 mm. wickets that year, 41 in 2015, 35 in 2016. And yeah, sure, it's not still on that upward curve, but you know he's still taking consistent wickets in the championship, most of those in Division 1, I think, at that stage for Lanks. It's only 2017 where things start to go awry. He ends up getting loaned to North Hants, which is where he ends up losing his deal with Lanks after that. It kind of He's kind of off the radar at that point. He's released. But here's the kind of nice twist. Last year, 2020, the Bob Willis Trophy, there were fewer international players knocking around, as we know. It was all sort of domestic players, which meant more opportunities for young players and also more opportunities for guys who'd fallen off the radar a bit. And he was back playing for North Ants last year, picked up a few wickets, averaged 29. And um, look, he's only 31 years of age. He's taken in excess of 300 first-class wickets at about 30. We know that finger spinners do tend to play their best cricket in their early 30s. Let's not write this bloke off. Back in the system, he obviously had considerable talent as a younger bloke, had that terribly chastening experience at test level. But I think that if he's shown enough resilience to hang in there and to make a comeback now at a new club. I think that's a story that we should keep watching and, you know, dream big. Maybe he can he can go back up the pyramid and, and reach the test team again and wouldn't that be a, a lovely twist to a story that that isn't finished yet. 
Come back, Kerrigan. Uh, that is Adam Speard for the number six, 56 for Chris Unwin. Anybody whose numbers are not correct, if our guesses aren't right, just let us know in the DMs and we come back to them on a subsequent story time. That's how this game works. The last of our new numbers for today comes in from one of our Tom Stewarts. We have two Tom Stewarts. We like to uh, I think there's keep a, third a now, spare Tom Stewart. I, I think, that, I think well, Tom Stewart from uh, the Morillian podcast who works no. with Lenders, he, I think oh, he's yeah. coming on. He told me he was joining the Patreon page, so we're going to have all okay. three. He, look, this probably isn't that Tom Stewart, but just mm. for the record, mm. I think we're going to have three in contention in future weeks. We're like a Sri Lankan side with wicket keepers. You know, just <laughs> always make sure you have at least three available. <laughs> but one of the original two Tom Stewarts sent through $2.43, and uh, I'm tackling this one. In terms of two forty-three, what that might mean, if we were looking at the order of debuts, this is where Pakistan are up to right now as of this moment um, in Test cricket. The latest number 243 was Norman Ali, the left-arm spinner who came in and took some wickets for them against South Africa a little while ago. Ravindra Jadeja's test bowling average is 24.3, but this is a number that Tom changed probably a few months ago, I reckon. And I don't think this... It would have been before Jadeja's last couple of test matches right. so that wouldn't have been uh wouldn't have been the number then we had a number a couple of weeks ago which was 342 from bernard sayers which was actually supposed to be a scoreline reading three for two in the australian way three wickets and two runs if you did it in the accepted world way it would be two for three which could be tom stewart's number so it could even be the same number referring to the start of the ashes test at <laughs> adelaide which would be nice if it if it were the case uh, because it's one of those things where parochial stubbornness aside you think well if every other cricketing country does it that way maybe we should just do it that way we got a question this week in the patron inbox i I can't recall who it was from but asking Mm. why in australia we do it the other way around it i i can't answer that question it's it's one i'm taking it on notice i'll find out during the week it's i mean i imagine it's just one of those convention things and and maybe it was you know rammed in by world series cricket but it's well before then i mean if this goes back to I mean, yeah. as far as I'm aware, it's always been that way, which would suggest that there, there's there been a decision mm. made at some point along the line to, to break with the traditional convention. I, so there must be, there must be a story, right? I it's a decision. I reckon it... I reckon it just, it's one of those things that starts being done a certain way and so people carry on doing it that way um, and, and then it then it becomes too entrenched to change. Um, but nonetheless, the 2-4-3 could be, it could be that. It could be the highest target that the Pakistan women's team have ever chased in one-day internationals. They ended up making 2-45 because they hit a boundary off the last ball, but they were chasing 2-43, which was big for them because they're not great run chasers, um, the Pakistan team. They ran that down in 2015 against Sri Lanka. But I thought maybe because um, we've been spending a lot of time talking about the 2001 Australian tour of India because it's 20 years ago since that happened and Adam's just made the greatest season that was podcast about Australia's relationship with India. So it happens to be the number of runs that Stephen Roger War patched together on that 2001 tour, 243 of them. Uh, what was that 140 in yeah. the the second test? At, um, I think it might not have been. It might have been a Calcutta. few few less than that. Didn't he? Was that one of the ones, Jeff? When he had to be helped by the lower order, or have I got that? In- yeah, very much so. Sorry, it wasn't 100. It was the score was 440 when he got out, and so he was more like 120. Yeah, that feels feels right. But yeah, he he made most of them with Gillespie and McGrath. Gillespie made 48 or 49, and McGrath made 21. I think, and batted for a long time. 
Yeah, I reckon War was on about 60 when McGrath came mm. out and ended up making 110 or so. I think 110 sounds about right. Anyway, that was a diversion. Uh, so, but he, he made 243 for the series. And someone else who made 243 in a series happens to be in a series in 1951-52 when England were visiting India. Guess who was captaining India? Vijay Hazare. <laughs> ah, what a coincidence. We meet again, Vijay Hazare. One of those very 50s series where the first three tests are drawn and then India win the fourth. So, uh, Sorry, England win the fourth. So India are 1-0 down. And then our mate Polly Umraga, who we've spoken about before, who went on to captain India with distinction, he was new to test cricket playing in his second series but he made his first test ton in the fifth test of that series to set up an innings win and ended up with 243 for the series so those are some options for tom stewart good one chef thank you one of the tom stewart's do send us a a note and let us know whether we've got it right and do let us know which tom stewart you are also if you want to send us a a number and be one of our new nerd pledges you can do so patreon.com Forward slash the final word, we're on the hunt for 614. It's been just delightful uh, how many people have elected to hit the button. Even in the first few months of this year, the plan is to make so much more of the final word through the course of 2021. And uh, yeah, every uh, every patron helps uh, in that mission of ours. So thank you to the existing crew and hopefully we can continue adding people and keep making this story time show. Jeff, so that's the nerds out of the way so to speak. We mm-hmm. also have Julio's. Now, that might take some explaining from you, but we are going to do a little tiny, tiny bit of Julio pledge before we uh, have a break and look at some numbers we got wrong in previous editions of the show. Yes, the Julio's are the ones who don't have time to be nerds, so they send through a, a round number, an even number, a normal number, and you know, bless them as well. They're all part of that. So we just want to make sure that the Julio's are part of the show as well. Uh, and, and so I try to interpret from the names of the Julios, so who they might be, what they might be about. Uh, the first of which is Walter Fagan, who, um, as far as I know, the, the most defining fact about Walter Fagan is that he hates Oliver Twist, any mention of it. The book, the movie, the play, don't talk the to The rhyming Walter slang. You don't want to go and get Oliver Twist with Walter Fagan. He'll, he'll slap you around the chops. Oh, yeah. <laughs> We also have Shyam Sundaraman, who uh, I'm just assuming this is sort of a pseudonym for the guy who directed The Sixth Sense, uh, M. Knight Shyam Sundaraman, you may recall. Andrew Barker. Andrew Barker just hangs out on Barker's Road in Hawthorne and tells people that it's his road. It's not his no, road. It's, like he says, oh, this is named after me. But, but it's not named after him. Yeah. It's named after John Barker, Hawthorne cult hero. So he's kind of got it wrong the wrong yeah. way around. Yeah. Mm. Well, no, Andrew knows. Andrew knows it's not. He's just trying to impress people, passers by. He just hangs around under at the corner with the big street <laughs> sign and goes, hey, see my ID? This is my road. They named this road after me. Just thought you should know. Total bullshit artist, Andrew Barker. I respect the uh, the hustle, but, you know, he's, he's, he's out there looking for respect and, and that's all that any of us want, really. Uh, Hannah Edmonds has signed up under the screen name, this is actually true, of Dr. Niles. So I can only oh. assume that Hannah Edmonds has been watching a lot yes, of Frasier so. <laughs> before signing up. An to- all-time <laughs> character is Niles Crane. So uh, I love a little uh, doff of the hat there from uh, Hannah Edmonds. We also have Divyanshu Agrawal. Uh, Divyanshu in Hindi means divine light. So that's a nice name to have. And Agrawal, which I assume is also related to, say, Mayank Agrawal, is, it refers to the people of Agroha, which is a city in Haryana. But uh, not many people know that Agroha is also the birthplace of Agro. 
from Agro's <laughs> Cartoon Connection, who was, you know, originally came from that part of the world before breaking into Australian um, early morning children's TV. Probably as it was he a rival or a co-station person with James Sherry. No, they they, they, they yeah, I think they were different. Shows. They were both on Seven, yeah, weren't they? Sherry on the weekends and Agro during the week. Dylan Leach, patron, mm. friend, mm. comrade, sent me a uh, a clip a few weeks ago from the Channel Seven News a few years ago from from Australia's greatest Agro collectors, a husband and wife combo who have mm-hmm. every possible bit of aggro merch, which Dylan thought I needed wow. to see. And he, look, he was he was right. Was the headline for the uh, t- piece Agro's Cartoon <laughs> Collection? I think maybe they might have also been agrophobic. <laughs> ah, very good. Um, you'd hope not. That'd be your worst nightmare. It'd be like being locked in a room with all of those like ceramic dolls that some people collect. Imagine like you know, you're waking up after a big night and you're in a room with like 480 of those ceramic <laughs> dolls staring at you. Bad times. Sean Williamson is a Julio pledger. I can only assume that uh, he just has Steve Waugh following him around all the time, <laughs> having misheard his name, saying, can you sing True Blue? Sing True Blue for Is it me? Is it mum or dad? Is it cockatoo? Is it standing by your mates when you're in a fight? Genuinely one of the worst songs. (laughs) A terrible, terrible song. It's, It's not as bad as the Australian National Anthem, but... As a pseudo-national anthem, or at least for cricketers, it is a genuinely terrible song. That's a controversial cricket opinion that I'm happy to have on this show. Uh, We have Pankash Chella on the Julio Pledges, who actually worked on the set of the original Grease movie um, way back when and tried to persuade them to change the lyrics where they say a walla 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 ooh he wanted them to say a chala 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 ooh so that he could be in the song but uh, it didn't work he didn't get his way sadly Pankaj missed out uh, we have Devashish Das who uh, just just brings back great memories of Shiv Sundadas, the the great uh, the great short leg fieldsman in that 2001 series he was always standing in there getting clobbered time and again and providing catches I on hope the they've rebound. had a 20 year reunion of the Calcutta win and SS Das is part of that and mm. there's a few other players in that Indian team who are less high profile than the big four or five who who, who I'm sure can still trade yeah. off their presence in that team and SS Das who uh, I suppose he was a bit of a forerunner he made runs he in Chennai. He did half century, an important half century. I, I wonder whether, yeah, for, he was the, he was around for a while, and yeah, he was sort of he. I suppose he mm. was a a bit of a sign of things to come in terms of sturdy Indian opening players who no one could intimidate. And uh, our last one is Dylan Nichols, the the Reverend uh, who plays with the Quokkas Cricket Club in Melbourne, and I hope one day is actually going to take articles of divinity of some sort. I know you can just do these online and so on, so that he could actually be legally a reverend um, and maybe officiate at cricket weddings or things like that. So the Rev, if you're listening, you know, please please consider making it formal. You know, let's 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 make this official. So those are our Julio pledges. Uh, thank you to all of you for joining up as well, or at least those are the ones from the previous month. There are other Julio pledges who've joined up who we will come to once we tick over into a new month. So if you have recently joined, do not despair. We have not forgotten you. You do not go unseen in our eyes. We love and appreciate we do indeed. All right, that's it for whoa, 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 the first whoa, 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 half, whoa, whoa, I believe. No, 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 no. We've got one more thing to do, which I haven't told you about. Cue the music, DC.
Jeff, normally we do our correspondence at the end of the show, and normally we would have had a, a dusty old bastard, and Chesney Hawks would, would, uh, would usher that in. But we didn't have one today, but we did have a piece of correspondence which just needed our immediate attention. I, I wasn't willing to leave it mm-hmm. until next week. I think you've said before, Jeff, if you've got a joke, you've got to, you've got to use it straight away. If you get an email that's this good, yep. you've got to read it straight away. It's from Robin Fritz, one of our fine patrons, and she has a yarn for us. She begins to say that she hopes that we are going to like this story, so our appetite's suitably wet. Speaking to my 85-year-old mum, Jennifer Baxter, about cricket, she's a proud Yorkshire woman. She's almost blind but loves any cricket on TV. And we were talking after the third T20 International. I asked her about her cricket memories and she reminded me that her mum and dad were there at Headingley the day that Bradman scored his 300 in a day, which is quite remarkable. She then told me that she'd once gone on a date with Brian Close. <laughs> but this is the important <laughs> final word fact you're going to like. This is the bit. Bradman's 300 in a day, Brian Close on a date. That means nothing compared to this. Mm. I wonder if you tried to get a bit too, Brian, close. <laughs> okay. I'll, the story goes back to Robin. I was listening to you and she heard you mention the latest DOB and then playing Chesney. Turns out my mum was the midwife to Len Hawkes and Carol Dilworth in the 1970s. And my mum was the woman who brought Chesney Hawkes into this world. <laughs> she, is, <laughs> she is the one and only. And I hope you enjoy that fact. Let's just take a deep breath on that. Chesney Hawks was brought into the world by Robin Fritz's mum, Jennifer Baxter, who was the midwife on duty in the 1970s. And if that isn't the best bit of correspondence we've received this year, I don't know what is. If you're doing the six degrees of separation stuff, (laughs) how do you link us to Chesney Hawks in the fewest steps? Call the midwife. What an outstanding piece of information. Thank you, Jennifer, for remembering that and for deciding to pass it on. And thank you, Robin, for being the conduit. I thought you'd like that, Jeff, on the way to a break. So, yes, we will have a breather now on my terms. And when we come back, we're going to revisit some old numbers and confirm some others that we got right along the way. I'm Barney Douglas, director of The Edge. You're listening to The Final Word with Adam and Jeff. What a show. Jeff, on the final word, story time edition, weekend edition, we often talk about Lord's Taverners in our break. They actually came up on the weekly show this week as well. You know the tale about what they've done in the community over the last seven decades, a remarkable charity who do some quite extraordinary things. But we didn't expect to necessarily be talking about them on the weekly show, and we did in the context of Brazil cricket and the remarkable service they've provided uh, that national team and the communities who, who, are, who have taken to cricket in the last 10 years or so. In terms of bobbing up in the right place at the right time, it was the Lord's Taverners who got a whole shipping container of cricket kit to send to Brazil because there was no way to get cricket equipment in Brazil and it was hard to import it with bureaucracy and taxes and all the rest of it. So they managed to get all of this stuff sent over so that kids from underprivileged neighbourhoods in Brazil could be taught to play cricket and there's a program with 30 3,000 kids currently being taught cricket and playing cricket and that's expanding. So that's the kind of thing that Lord's Tavs do outside of the UK and then within the UK they run programs which are fundamentally about looking out for kids living with disabilities or disadvantage and trying to help them have like a safe social environment, a place to go and, and be engaged in sport to make friends and all the rest of it and that's been really hard over the last year obviously because um, of distancing and lockdowns 
and it's also smashed their ability to uh, to fundraise. You know, they haven't been able to run events and get people together to to help raise money to do these things. So isolation and loneliness, that's what Lord's Taverners are mostly about tackling for young people and their ability to do that is being curtailed, but it's never been more important than in, in the yeah, last Yeah, it's a bit year. of a double-headed monster, isn't it? Because the Lord's Taverners programs have never been more important really than now for... Uh, some of the most at risk and vulnerable uh, members of our community uh, and isolation, as we know, the data points towards how people with disabilities or, or people who are at a disadvantage have been affected so badly by isolation. And then, as you say, it's it's been harder and harder to host those big events. I mean, as you know, Jeff, and as I know, that there are so many fantastic Lord's Taverners, lunches and dinners and fundraisers around the world where people dip into their pocket and, and do a good thing uh, for the broader cricketing community and the broader mm. sporting community. But that's not really been viable in the last 12 months. And look, who knows how long it'll be until those kind of functions can happen again. So it's more about the old-fashioned nickel-and-dime style of fundraising, Obama 2008 style, compared to uh, getting the big mm. donors in. It's about everyone kind of putting their shoulder to the wheel. And I think the great part about this, Jeff, is you get a sense of scale when you talk to the Lord's Tabs. And for the price of one coffee a month, so three quid a month is the figure we've been given, that is enough to make sure that a child can attend a program for a whole year. So it's not as though you need to pile in loads and loads of cash to make it. It's an extraordinary difference for people who have yeah. been without, especially through the last 12 months. Yeah, that's the information that we've got that, you know, without putting in a huge amount, you can still have an influence, uh, have an impact for a kid who's able to attend those programs through that month. So uh, that's the kind of thing that we would love to uh, encourage people to do if they're able to do so. If you're in that position, uh, we would love you to consider it. You can find out information about all the programs and the donations and tax deductibility and all of the rest of it at lordstaverners.org. That link is in the show notes as well. Hi, I'm Ebony Rainford-Brent and you're listening to The Final Word with Adam Collins and Jeff Lemon. It's a final word, story time with Jeff Lemon and Adam Collins. The revisits, the numbers that we have to come back to, one of them was $5.68. It came in from Cameron and we were having a look at the Indian Test women's team playing in the 1970s, uh, Shubangi Kulkarni collecting the wicket of the ghost of Joan Alexander Serrano. It was not that, surprisingly. Really? Uh, we, we had a hint that this was to do with... Yeah, I was staggered as well. We had a hint that it was to do with a podcaster and something important to the internet cricket community. And so we went with the debut match of Shane Watson, who was important to the internet cricket community. Now, this will take a little bit of explaining. The person we heard from to solve this clue was not Cameron, who sent the clue in, but somebody by the name of Dave. If you're on Twitter, you may know Dave because Dave was just an ordinary boy, you know, uh, just an ordinary bear until one day they found something wrong with him at the factory and threw him away like a piece of rubbish. Now, he... um, he, he happened to be at a Prime Minister's 11s game five years ago and he ran into Mark Latham, who was formerly the head of the the, uh, the leader of the Australian Labor Party and then presumably had one of those accidents where you fall off a ladder and your personality becomes awful and now has somehow got voted in a state Senate seat in New South Wales to be basically the member for 4chan and just puts, like, stormfront memes through as legislation and that sort of thing. Anyway... Dave ran into Mark Latham wearing a filthy polo shirt and a pair of oversized shorts. And 
ever since then has posted about this, uh, mostly to Mark Latham until Mark Latham got really angry about it a couple of years later and couldn't take it anymore. So this is the same Dave, the dirty polo oversized shorts fame Dave, who sent us a message to solve the clue for us, saying the podcaster in question is not Shane Watson, it's Adam Collins, because <laughs> Kane Richardson took five for 68, which is the number, at Manuka Oval in 2016 against India. It was the first match that Adam commentated for the ABC, and the connection with the internet is that this was, in fact, the match where I saw Mark Latham in a dirty polo and oversized shorts. It did not happen at the PM's 11 because that was one month earlier and I got it mixed up. So to this day, <laughs> Dave sticks with the PM's 11 because that's funnier, and fair enough, but the PM's 11 run-in happened at this match, which is 568, which relates to... Adam Collins. Adam. Yeah, the, the big reveal here was totally worth it from Dave, who's one of the great people on the internet, full stop, and we've had the great privilege of meeting him at the very spot where he ran into Mark Latham. We met for a, mm. for a... I'm not sure if we had a beer or not, but we certainly had a chat to him during the test match at, at Canberra in early 2019. But yeah, a couple of years before that, he's right. I did call a one-day international where Kane Richardson took five for 68. It was a big day for me personally and a lot of people, I suppose, at the time who were excited for me on the internet. So it all kind of tallies. And yeah, Kane Richardson, I think he took all five wickets in one spell, didn't he? India were cruising to about 340 for victory. Shikha Dewan made 100. I think Kohli mm. made 100 as well. And then Richardson came back and ripped through the Indian middle and lower order. And, and that was that. And Australia won the series. But yeah, memorable day for me. But far more importantly, a memorable day for, for Dave in terms of um, what he's been able to extract and enjoy uh, out of uh, that interaction with Mark Latham, who, yes, as you say, the, the, the less said about him these days, the better. And that was extremely funny. And then we got a very heartfelt message from Cameron, uh, who had sent the 568, saying, he may hate me doing this, but I would like to talk about how great a guy Dave is. Hell yeah. Not only does he raise spirits online, but he's always there for a friend and often makes a point of being there in person. He's organised to raise considerable sums of money for charities like the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. It started out as a reference to a joke, but really it is about one of the best cricket fans on Twitter. Seeing Mark Latham in a dirty polo and oversized shorts at a PM's 11 could not have happened to a greater guy. <laughs> Thank That's, you, Cameron. Yeah, Thank that- you, Dave. That's a ripper from Cameron. I just want to back over the Indigenous Literacy Foundation fundraiser that Dave ran around New Year's Day this year. That was incredible. And that reflected what a great guy Dave is because he pops up a message. I think he was trying to raise like 500 bucks or something relatively modest. And he did that times and times over as so many people were happy to put their hand in their pocket and support that fantastic cause, the Indigenous Literacy Foundation. We might put that in our show notes as well, Jeff. Indeed. Uh, The 620 from Michael Fitzgerald, we narrowed this down to suggest that we were looking for the 60-second item on a list that had something to do with cricket. And eventually, Michael was helping us with some clues because we were lost over about three previous weeks. It's a cricketing venue that is 60-second for some reason. Yeah, the 60-second test venue was Bell Reeve Oval in Hobart. And I think the the idea that... um, that it may not happen again. That kind of flavour of Michael's clue, Fitzy's mm. clue, I should say, calls himself Fitzy in the, in the DMs, is, is because, I mean, it's been five years since a test match at Bell Reeve and who knows how long it'll be until we see a test match there. Again, um, there have been tests played there since... Well, not at any point in the in the current forward planning. There are yeah. all five test summers for the next few years. Yeah, and even if there were a six-test summer, even if there were, as it might be with Afghanistan next year, I'd expect that Canberra would be next cab off the rank, which... 
you know, I'm a bit torn on because Canberra is a brilliant test venue. They did a great job in 2019, but Hobart shouldn't be discounted the way that it has been in recent years. But yeah, so Ricky Ponting is the leading run scorer at Hobart. He made 581 runs at 65. Mike Hussey made an uh, average 101 there, including his um, uh, maiden test ton, which I was down there for in 2005, late 2005. Shane Warne took 28 wickets at 22. Uh, Peter Siddle is second in the running there, 22 at 15.7. Interestingly, Jeff, we're up to 121 test venues now. So between 1877 and 1989, there were only 61, and we you know, pretty much doubled that in the last 31 years. The last of those was Lucknow getting off the mark uh, when India hosted Bangladesh there in November 2019. Thank you, Adam. Uh, the revisit for 204, Chris Dobbins, you took the opportunity to tell at length the story of Charlie Parker, our dusty old bastard, for last week, um, which I think I suggested when you, um, when you raised it that that was unlikely to be the, the right answer. Chris said, as a 50-year-old Sydney cider, you need to think closer to home. Yeah, and, and that was the pertinent bit of the clue, him being 50 years old. I thought, well, uh, let's look at what happened when he was a kid at Sydney. Well, uh, when he would have been 10 in 1981, the New Year's test, uh, Greg Chappell made 204. The first match of that series, and it was a really important innings too because Australia were were in strife early on. They were 2 for 14 in reply to India's 201, but... The captain, Chappell, uh, gets 204. Australia make 406. And then they bowl India out in the second innings for 201 again to win by an innings and four runs. That got me thinking, how often in Test cricket has a team made the same score twice? Uh, And I stumbled upon a Stephen Lynch column, his mighty Crick Info column that he's been writing for years. Until he wrote that in 2015, there had been 11 instances of a team making the same score in their first and second innings. And and one of those was India in 1981 after Greg Chappell made his 204 out of 406. Very good. Uh, Thank you, Adam Collins. The next one is Paul Reeves, $2.14. Now, this had a hint that was to do with happening just before Trent Bolt came on the scene. So I went with Matthew Sinclair's test innings of 214, given Sinclair retired just before Bolt started playing. But there was something in the clue about it, um, about there being a double being related to that. And so I took that to mean the double century. It doesn't mean that. Paul says it meant something that happened twice in the same match. So, given we were just talking about the same score being made twice in the same match, fittingly we are talking about a tied T20 international with the scores level on 214. This happened in 2010. Trent Bolt debuted in 2011. So uh, that is the link to Bolt. And this was a Brendan McCullum special. He made two centuries in T20 internationals. One of them was this one, 116 not out, batted through the innings after opening. 56 balls, 12 fours and eight sixes that he sent off into the night sky in Christchurch, as he liked to do, a a ground that he enjoyed batting at, although it wouldn't have been the same ground, would it? No, it would have been Um, one of the last... Yeah, that would have been one of the last games played at Lancaster Park, which is terribly sad that that got written off after the earthquake 10 years ago. Mm. Mm, Yes. So... so, so two fourteen. Both teams made two fourteen. Uh, they the New Zealanders made that, and then the Australians went after it and, and ended up making the same score. Uh, Michael Clark sixty seven. 
He didn't play a lot of memorable T20 innings, but that was probably a good one, of 45 balls. Cameron White, 64 not out of 26 balls, if you don't mind. <laughs> Five sixes and had a good time. And the Australian bowling attack's a really fun one in that game as well in terms of just, you know, interesting bowlers or good people. Uh, Sean Tate, Dirk Nannis, Ryan Harris, David Hussey, Steve Smith and Dan Christian bowling in that game. So, yeah, the, uh, the Cam White 64 not out got them level but didn't get them the win. Yeah, I like that too. Ultimate dinner party areas there from the Australian bowling lineup. I was actually watching Cam White make 116 not out last night. Somerset, the same score that McCullough made in that T20. And, and then obviously White was integral in hauling it down in the last couple of overs. But um, he made 116 not out in about 50 balls in that world record effort that Somerset had in 2006, where they made 250 for three at Taunton against mm. Gloucestershire, your favourite county, Jeff. But um, yeah, he put, on a, he put on about 150 with Justin Langer, who was the club captain at the time and White kept going and going and and raised three figures and the other thing I found about this is that there have been 19 ties in T20 international cricket and this is the highest it's the only one where it's been in excess of 200 runs so 214 apiece uh, the best tie in terms of runs scored uh, we've had in that format of the game I should also note mind you that um, that New Zealand won that match in a super over. They haven't been much chop at winning super overs lately, but they did win that 2010 game in a super over. Martin Guptill got the winning boundary, so he does know how to do it. And they, they managed to get Clark run out off the last ball, coming back for a third run. Um, that's how they managed to tie it up in the first place. So he'd run two and was, was coming back for the third. So, yeah, good times with that 2.14, which is definitely what Paul Reeve was writing about. Yeah, I reckon so as well. A nice send off the length. Lancaster Park. Uh, 148 Sam Ashworth. We talked about Denise Annette's unbeaten 148 in her final test match in 1992 and Sean Marsh's 148 at Centurion. Sam replied by saying, the number refers to a player that we've previously discussed in the DMs and the number doesn't refer to any sort of match analysis figures. So it's not bowling, batting or fielding stats. Just moving back to Denise Annette's quickly before we go to that. So Hypercourse, the great statistician and historian on Twitter, noted that Denise Annette's final test match where she made 148 not out in 1992 at the North Sydney Oval was the last five-day women's test match. After that, they reverted to... The only five-day women's The only five-day women's test match. Sorry, right you are. But um, they went back to to four thereafter. He also put up a brilliant video this week, Hypercourse, on Twitter. It's of Australia playing a one-day international at Lords in 1987, where the great Martin Tyler is the commentator. Uh, it's kind of out of a, it looks like it's out of a documentary rather than sort of ball by ball commentary, but nevertheless, it's worth um, looking up on my feed. I, I retweeted it. I thought when watching it, Denise Emerson walked out to open the batting, and I thought, oh, maybe that's Denise Annette's. Maybe it was Denise Emerson who later became. Denise Annette's, well, that wasn't the case. Denise Emerson, uh, who played in a similar era, her maiden name was Alderman. She's Terry Alderman's sister. And she became Denise Emerson, which is because she married uh, the, shall we say, controversial umpire, Ross Emerson, who called Murali all those times in the summer of uh, 95, 96, and then again on their next tour when he was actually bowling leg breaks. And anyway, again, we, we, we said with Mark Latham, uh, perhaps the less we say, the better it might be the same for Ross Emerson. But anyway, that's some Denise Annette's, uh, Terry Alderman, Ross Emerson, all thrown in there thanks to Hypercourse during the week. Back to Sam. Uh, the additional clue was a Lancashire player from my hometown of Blackpool. And I see what it is. 
I can see it. It's Stephen Croft, the great veteran of the T20 Blast, the great veteran at Lancashire who hails from Blackpool. He holds the record for the most amount of T20 games in a row in that competition, 148 on the bounce. And he's coming up for his 18th season uh, this year in 2021 there at Old Trafford. One of the biggest hitters in the comp for such a long period of time. The first Lancashire player to hit 100 sixes in T20 cricket and also integral to that 2011 uh, county championship win that we, we talked about earlier in the show uh, in the context of Simon Kerrigan. So that all comes together quite nicely, as it often does towards the end of a Storytime episode, Jeff. We had a number of 148s last week. So another of those we're revisiting is Duncan Davies. We were talking about Sean Marsh in South Africa. Duncan uh, said, the number refers to what I believe to be the highest international score from an alumni of my high school. I'll leave you with that, though I'm unsure if you have any easy way to find schools that players attended. Well, I know that Duncan should San Diego and he made a reference to me the other week about Jared Waitley in a, in a DM like reflecting on Jared's commentary so I assume that he must be from Melbourne or at least Australia originally and I went through and looked at the 148s for Australia and, and none of them worked um, Finch uh, Clark and Marsh, who we discussed in relation to his number last week, none of them were, were their highest scores in international cricket and thus wouldn't meet the clue of being the highest score made by a member of his former school. So um, we had to go further afield and he kind of nudged me in the right direction and Jeff, you took it to the finish line. Yes. Rather than looking at runs, we need to look at a strike rate, which takes us back to where we were only a couple of weeks ago, 229 not out, made by Belinda Clark at the 1997 World Cup. 155 balls she faced, which means her strike rate was 148. Australia made 413 for three from their 50 overs and they ended up bowling out Denmark for 49, which is curious in that nobody in the Danish team made double figures. It's got to be the highest, lowest score uh, without anybody making double figures, if you get what I mean. Yeah, that's what I thought as well. There were quite a lot of those heavy defeats in 1997, in and around the 97 World Cup. I couldn't work out the school though, Jeff. I, I um, I went Googling and, and couldn't quite work out what school that, uh, that Duncan went to along with Belinda Clark. Well, I found it. Belinda Clark went to Newcastle High School along with Miranda Otto and Silverchair. Not sure if they were at the same time, but in terms of dream dinner parties there, um, that'd be an interesting conversation. Outstanding. Okay, so that's the end of our revisits for this week. We've got some confirmations where we got it right previously. The first of those is Rory Seymour with 277, the twin 277s in consecutive years. His friend Rob White at Northampton and Graham Smith, who the next year made that same score against England. So we ticked the box there. 147.92, Jeff Price. We finally got there on Stephen Crook being uh, the Rose or he having played for um, either side of the Rose or whatever the clue was. That was his strike rate of course against Australia when he made that famous 100 back in 2015. He was glad also to hear some of that commentary uh, that we had um, from myself and Norky from that day my birthday in 2015 it was uh, nice to go back down memory lane with you Jeff. On his birthday um, he also supplied on the community page on on the patron page uh jeff price has put up a photo that he took he was there that day and he's got a photo of stephen crook leaving the field and in the background of that photo is me also taking a photo of stephen <laughs> crook leaving the field so he sort of sent it to me with, with a, a where's wally kind of thing of like you know have a look and see if you recognize anybody in this shot and uh, yeah lo and behold 
I'll have to go and find my corresponding photo and see if Jeff Price is in it. Well, you've got you've got a photo of um, Shane Watson that day as well, don't you? We had enough time. You were my summariser. I've got a number of photos well, of Shane Watson. Well, you were my summariser, and I was calling the Watson dismissal, and you had enough time to run mm. downstairs and get down at the race to take a photo of him walking mm. off the ground, and given it took him about four minutes to, to depart the field. Yeah. His last first class, uh, yep. or his last innings for Australia, you know, in Australian whites, as it was. I think it was his last first class innings, I reckon. I don't think he played for New South Wales again. Anyway, that was a, a moment in time, a, 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 a weekend that we'll never forget. We got, uh, more, or more or less, we got the 299 for Rob Taylor, which uh, had a hint about squares, and it had to do with Joe Root, square root. We ended up saying that 299 referred to 29.9, which was his average in T20s since the last T20 World Cup. Uh, and Rob Taylor says that actually wasn't the answer that he intended, but it's a better answer than he'd intended. <laughs> he'd just gone with Root's total runs in T20 international cricket being 893, the square of which is 299. <laughs> but he didn't realise there was already a 29.9 in root stats that matched that as well. So he's very happy that we found that. I'm very happy that we found it too. Imagine how long it would have taken us to have worked out the square root of, uh, of whatever it was in order Years. to get to 29.9. So thank you, Rob, for... Uh, well, thank you, Rob, for uh, telling us that we got it right anyway. The $2.85 from Debashish Biswas that led me on a roundabout way to the test economy bowling rate of Zulfa Kababa. Debashish just wrote back to say, I'm delighted you found so much joy from this number. So I'm assuming that, um, that either we were right or he did what we asked and lied to us about having the answer correct. Yes, he followed our instructions on that front. And our last uh, successful confirmation is that of Chris Jones, 116. Uh, we talked about, or Jeff talked about, Keith Piper's 116 alongside Brian Lara when he was rattling off 501. He says, bang on, great work, guys. And Tim Vanderpump uh, was in touch about this as well to say that he'd seen Keith Piper in the wild at South Hampstead Cricket Club curating the grass there um, a number of years ago, which is appropriate that the man who loves a pipe would be uh, curating the grass. I don't live a long, long way away from South Hampstead Cricket Club, so maybe at some point this summer we'll try and track him down and get him on the show. Mm, absolutely, as you should. Let's finish with a little bit of banner manning. Sure, sure, let's do that. So Vivek Arcott uh, got in touch to point out that there was a cracker from um, Verinda Sawak, not quite a bannerman, but he did make 61% of the runs for India in a test match where against Sri Lanka they were all out for 329 and Sawak made 201 from 231 balls. Uh, <laughs> so very Sawak energy there with four sixes along the way. But we won't make too much of that because, let's be honest, Sawak is on the final word shit list. And, you know, if you don't get over 67%... You don't you, count. You know, you're not in the hunt. He, he did, he, it was a good innings. Uh, a less, uh, less volatile luminous innings, but no less important to the fortunes of the team. Not that Tim Minchin has sent one through that happened fresh off the press um, a few days ago on the day that he sent it. Tim Jones of the team that Tim Minchin plays for, which is um, very classily named the Furious Master Batters, <laughs> made 20 out of 27 all out, which is 74.07% in the Brisbane Warehouse Cricket C1s. Uh, not that Tim Minchin also sent through the scorecard on which we can note his 16-ball duck in his first ever attempt at opening the batting. By coincidence, he says, he popped on story time for the drive home and 10 minutes into the trip was a story about WG Grace making 20 out of 27. Uh, so, you know, props to you, Tim, for, for being so honest. A 16-ball duck was probably quite important 
in an innings where your team was bowled out for 27. <laughs> yeah, Held them together of, for a while. Yeah, a pair of 20 out of 27s. I love that coincidence. And uh, we have some correspondence to finish, Jeff. We like to finish with a nice little email. We got one from Tanya Wintringham uh, during uh, the week about us reaching 2 million downloads. Uh, Tanya said that uh, she'd just seen our Twitter thread about reaching uh, that mark. It was utterly brilliant and so richly deserved. Uh, your voices coming through the podcast feed continue to be something that provides me with joy, comfort and outstanding cricket nerdery. The final word has become one of the touchstones of my daily life, which I find both disconcertingly weird and completely normal at the same time. So do we, Tanya. So do we. <laughs> Keep doing what you're doing. Uh, take no shit be who you are and may the next two million be faster than you imagine that's that's quite touching uh that uh, we've had that um effect on tanya and uh yeah uh, needless to say um when we get those notes in it means an awful lot to us both well the best thing about um a situation like this is that it's like joining up any sort of cult or whatever as long as enough other people are doing it it's not weird you know so (laughs) if if there are, you know, there are several thousand other people listening to the episode, then you know you can't be that weird. So, so don't worry about it. It's fine. Uh, nothing ever ends badly uh, in that way. Thank you, Tanya. I think, uh, I think we've pretty much reached the close of the show. It's been another bumper edition. We're uh, we're putting more into these at the moment because we have time to do so. We're not in the middle of a Test match summer or something like that. Um, but we're loving the fact that everybody's enjoying the nerdery and the historical wonders. Any uh, final words, Adam? Just that we're, yeah, as I say, we're on the hunt for 614. So if this has been uh, an episode which has um, prompted you to want to join, that would be lovely. Patreon.com forward slash the final word. Thanks so much to Lord's Tabs. Thank you to Seabus Super. We uh, you know wonderfully supported by a lot of different people around and about. And it's made such a huge difference in the last couple of years. So, yeah, we're grateful that we're able to make this show. It's um, It's a lot of fun. It's the final word, story time on the Bad Producer Podcast Network, edited by Dave Collins. I'm Jeff Lemon, the other guys, Adam Collins, no relation. Uh, We will see you for our weekly show, which will come up, well, next week. That's when it usually comes up. Should be out on Wednesdays for the foreseeable future. And we're doing the daily videos on the YouTube channel for the T20 games between India and England and and the one-day internationals to follow. So if you want short Daily Bites, 15-minute eps, uh, that's what's up there. Whatever it is, we're on the internet, you're on the internet, you know how to find us and you know what we're doing. Uh, we love the fact that you're taking this journey with us. We'll see you next time. Bye. Have a good weekend. So you know what I meant here. I had to go about it, write it out and 